Good morning, church family. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13. We have started this series in the book of Isaiah. We are doing an overview series this month, the month of May. Five sermons through overview, the book of Isaiah. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapters 13 through 27. And that is our task before us today to see what the Lord is saying through the prophet Isaiah, through these chapters, and how that would inform and shape us today as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is our task. That is uh, where we're at today, Isaiah 30, 13, chapter 13 through chapters 27. Uh, a lot of judgment here. Uh, thought it'd be fitting for Mother's Day. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word. We pray for your help now as we look to it. Holy Spirit, help us to understand it, that we may live in faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the things I really enjoy is a good movie trailer. Movie trailers, if they're done well, and many of them are pretty, pretty much good, they're, they're, they're a tool, a, a, something that, that we're given to basically hype us up for the coming movie that is to be seen. And depending on the kinds of movies you enjoy, the more hyped you will become based upon the particular movie trailer. I mean, some of us have been sitting on this Top Gun 2 movie trailer for two years now, thanks to Corona. But one day, we will hopefully get to see Tom Cruise fly again. But movie trailers, when you think about a good movie trailer, they are just enough of the, uh, they're just enough of tasting the real thing to have you eagerly waiting the day when you finally get to go to the showing of the movie. It's to help set the trajectory of what you're going to experience in the movie. And sort of, not entirely the same, but prophetic writings are a bit like that, we could say. They're a bit more detailed than a movie trailer, but one of the points and one of the purposes of the prophets is to give us a snapshot of what we can expect in not only their day and time, but in the future as well. And if you are to read through the, through the prophets, you'll find that that's often the case. It's, it's giving us a taste of what is to come. It's foreshadowing what we can expect. And we know that when we get to the New Testament, we see all of the promises of God promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled and kept in the New Testament. And we see how that pans out and plays out over time. Now, if you were to come to Isaiah today and you're to read chapters 13 through 27. I don't know if any of you did that this week. Again, next week we'll be in 28 through something, 39 I think, for the next sermon. And so you wanna read those chapters ahead of time, that would be great. But if you read chapters 13 through 27 this week, you're probably thinking, Pastor, this is not a, this is not a movie trailer that I'm enjoying. There's a lot of heaviness in these chapters. But trust me, Isaiah's message is one we all want to hear, even today. In order for us to get our minds wrapped around the flow of this passage, I think it's important for us to, again, see within context where it falls. Last week, we looked at the first 12 chapters, and in chapters one through five, we saw how Isaiah, right out of the box, begins to highlight the dire situation in Judah. It's dark day, it's a dire day, it's, it's a lot of sin and tragedy that's going on in Judah. Uh, in fact, chapter one, verse two says, children, the Lord speaking of his people, he says, children have I reared, but they have rebelled. 
So you see the, the indictment against Judah. And then you move to chapter 6 through 12, where God calls Isaiah to his prophetic ministry and then makes a promise. He says, go preach to these people. They're hard-hearted. They're not going to hear you, but go tell them anyway. And then Isaiah is commissioned. But then in the midst of that commissioning, we see how throughout the chapters 7 and 9 in particular, God makes this promise of a promised king who is to come and the nature of this kingdom in which he will reign. And so that's what you find in Isaiah. You see a lot of warning, a lot of judgment, a lot of calling to account for not only the people of God, but for the surrounding nations, as we'll see today. But in the midst of all of these warnings and judgment, you find rays of hope and promise. Judgment and promise you find all throughout. And we're gonna see that again today in chapters 13 through 27. 13 through 27 is structured really as a whole unit. And so you may not see that as you read your way through, but, but as you read 13 through 27, you begin to see some structure there. What we find is the people of God, Judah, even Israel, the Northern Kingdom, but particularly the Southern Kingdom, we find them placed, surrounded by all of these other nations that are referred to throughout these chapters. And despite their own failure, and despite the wickedness that's going on around them in the other nations, what we're being told throughout this is that God is going to hold all of these nations accountable, including his own people. And not only in their day and time, but in the future, a couple of hundred centuries later, but even throughout the course of human history, there will come a day when there will be an appointed end at which all, will, all of God's people will inherit the promised salvation and the rest will face God's justice. If you read these chapters, again, it may not seem like there's much of a structure, but let me give it to you. Chapters 13 through 20. In chapters 13 through 20, you have five oracles that are really directed as historical prophecies pertaining primarily to the people of Isaiah's day and time. He goes a little bit beyond it. He talks about Babylon. We know that Assyria is the ruling power of this time in which Isaiah is writing. He does refer to Babylon. They would replace the Assyrians soon enough. And so he does reference Babylon in the future. But you have five historical prophecies of the people of this day. And then in chapters 21 through 23, you have further prophecies of peoples of that day, but these prophecies read a little different. They're additional prophecies particularly highlighting particular peoples of that day, but they have a timeless application detailing how things will progress throughout history. And then in chapters 24 through 27, you find the final end contrasted by two cities with an earthly city and its inhabitants being destroyed and a heavenly city and its inhabitants living in glory. So let me simplify this. It's a little bit more complicated, but let me just try to simplify it. 13 through 20, historical prophecies pertaining to people of this day in Isaiah's time. Isaiah 21 through 23, highlighting people of that day, but the application has, is a timeless application throughout the course of human history. 24 through 27 is the end of history where God sets up eternity. And so that's what we're going to look at today in the next five minutes, right? We'll, we'll spend a few minutes looking at this today. So here's the main idea that I want you to hear. The main idea from chapters 13 through 27 is this. God, through Isaiah, is giving us prophetic eyes so we can live with awareness of God's sovereignty over world history so that even amidst all the madness of this world, we can live with confidence. That's all that Isaiah is doing. That's all God is doing through Isaiah here. He is giving his people warning 
He's, he's warning them. He's saying this is what's going to happen, but he's doing so in a way that is intended, designed to give God's people confidence in the day and time in which they live so they can persevere amidst all of the difficulty. This was crucial for Judah in Isaiah's day and it's crucial for us in our day. We are too often tempted to put our confidence in earthly things. Judah did this. This is part of their downfall. They trusted in other nations. They trusted in their politics and in their political alliances. They trusted in other gods and they trusted even in themselves. And so friends, if we are going to have confidence in this world, that confidence must not come from within us or our politics or our national alliances or even ourselves in some way. It must come from the Lord. And that's exactly what we find here in our text today. And so in order for us to find this confidence in our text, I want us to see two primary ways that the Lord says, here's how you can have confidence in the midst of a chaotic and mad world. Two ways. How do we find confidence? Way number one is our confidence is to be rooted in God's universal justice. God's universal justice. This is where our confidence needs to be rooted. Not in ourselves, not in other gods, not in in other things, but in God's sovereignty and just rule over all the world. We see that in chapters 13 through 23 primarily. And we know that God's people lived in a day when a lot of evil was around, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of changing of, of leaders and here and there, and you, you find a lot of idolatry, a lot of evil practices and the, and the rest. Even God's people had succumbed to many of these ungodly, wicked practices, and certainly God had a lot to say about it in warning them and giving his people specific instruction. But one of the things we find here is that God is reassuring his people that he, not them, not the other nations, he will always have the final word. He will have the final word. And I want, to see, I want us to see that in two primary things underneath this idea of God's justice. First of all, I want you to notice the language of justice that we find throughout these chapters. Again, the first, the, the, the first few chapters we have, well, not few, thir- chapters 13 through 20, there are about 10 oracles, prophetic words that are pronounced to particular nations. The first set of those we find, the first five, like I said earlier, documenting historical prophecies speaking into political upheavals. There, you find it in chapter 13 with Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus and Israel. It's kind of kept as one because they were in an alliance together. And then Egypt. And you find it, for example, in chapter 13, verse 19. Let me read that. This is regarding Babylon. Again, couple of hundred, a little 150, 200 years down the road before they would come into power. But Isaiah's projecting into the future here. And he says this, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in all, in for all generations, nor Arab will pitch, no Arab will tent, pitch his tent there, nor shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but wild animals will lie there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. You, you see the language of justice regarding Philist, uh, excuse me, Babylon. But then in chapter 14, so he's speaking against Babylon, which would actually be the world power that overcomes Assyria, and they would eventually overtake the people of God in Judah and take them into exile. Chapter 14 speaks about the restoration 
of Judah when they would come out of exile and then they would actually be a taunt against Babylon. And so really the prophecy against Babylon continues throughout chapter 14. Um, you find a reference there even to Assyria. Look as he comes back to his modern day in chapter, thir- or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. Notice what he says. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So you see this language of justice. God is going to hold these nations to account. Again, in chapter 15 and 16, same things towards Moab. In chapter 17, Damascus, Syria, and Israel, unified alliance, chapter 17 is addressing that. And then in chapter 19, you find it in reference to Egypt. So you find these historical prophecies being given about what these nations are going to face from God. It's as if Isaiah looks at the known world of his day. You have to remember, he's Old Testament. So he's looking at the known world of his day, that fertile crescent. If you were to have a map, I don't know if we have the map. We have the map. Yeah, there you go. I'm sure you can see it. That green area. So it covers Iraq, modern day Turkey a little bit there, and down to the Middle East, down to Egypt. So that's, that's the kind of the known world of the day. And it's as if Isaiah's looking at that map, so to speak, throughout these chapters and saying, God is God not only of Judah, not only of Israel in the north, but over all of these nations, even the ones who are the most powerful and the most prideful all the way from Assyria in the north to Egypt in the south, the Lord is saying, I have authority over the nations. The point is being made here is simple. God is no mere local deity. He's not just God of Israel and then everybody else is kind of on their own and he has no no say in the rest of the world, not at all. He is God over all nations, then and now, and all are accountable to him. That's the point that's being made throughout these chapters. And then in chapters 21 through 23, there are five more oracles. But this time, Isaiah, if you were to turn to chapter 21, this time Isaiah uses some cryptic titles in some of these nations. And the focus here seems to be more applied to certain topics regarding religious activity than political upheaval, as we saw in the first five. And so, for example, you you see he references the wilderness of the sea, Verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, this is in reference to Babylon. It's a reference to Babylon. Then you find in verse 11, the oracle concerning Duma, which is a wordplay meaning silence in reference to Edom, the Edomites. And then you find a, a reference to Arabia. And then he uses another term later on in chapter 22. He says the oracle concerning the valley of vision, a reference to Jerusalem, and then to Tyre. And so what you begin to see here in these these additional oracles, they're being applied to specific nations of the day, but the application seems to be timeless because there's reference to the downfall of the gods, a a prolongation of of time. You you find how Jerusalem is being held accountable for its self-reliance and falling to the pressures of the world, etc. And Isaiah walks through these nations, nation after nation, chapter after chapter, Oracle concerning Babylon, oracle concerning uh, 
all of these, the Moabites, the Philistines, etc. Chapter after chapter, nation after nation, he's saying, these nations will be held accountable to me. And by the way, what you'll find in the language of judgment is often this reference to the day of the Lord, this day of the Lord language. And what we find in the the scriptures is the, the day of the Lord language is certainly referring to that great and final day when the Lord will hold all accountable, when, he, when the Lord Jesus returns and, and all will be judged. But the day of the Lord is also used in reference to historical events throughout human history, and all of these days of the Lord, so to speak, are but a prelude for that great and final day. And we find that throughout the course of these chapters. Notice also that it's Babylon who's at the first of the list, there's two lists of five, 13 through 20, 21 through 23, and the first nation listed in each of those lists, Babylon, mentioned both times as the first one. And so not only is Babylon a historical place that comes to power, was overtaken later by the Persians, but Babylon is also a code word in the Bible for the evil world order that stands defiantly against God. And what we're seeing here in Isaiah and what we find throughout the rest of the scriptures is that just as historical Babylon falls and is judged by God, so will the Babylon that spans throughout history. And you can go to Revelation chapter 18 and see just how hard Babylon falls. God's point is simple. This is a warning. Don't make political and religious friends with the world because it will not last. We can just summarize those chapters. That's what he's saying to the people of God. Problem is, they've already done that. They've already done that. They've made alliances with all of these nations in some way or another, or they're afraid of them. They're trusting in themselves. The the point is, they're not looking to the Lord. They're looking elsewhere. And he's saying, don't do that. All will be held accountable. I want you to notice a couple of things regarding God's justice. First, secondly, the objects of his justice. You see the language. We just go chapter after chapter and see how God's going to bring justice to these nations. But notice the objects. Certainly all the nations are going to be objects of God's judgment, but a few things in particular we need to highlight. Number one, you see there's a particular emphasis on the proud. Turn to chapter 15. In chapter 15, Isaiah begins an oracle against Moab. These people were known to boast about their their own pride. And in chapter 16, continuing about Moab, the first five verses, we find that Isaiah is referencing Moab and he's envisioning them pleading to Judah for asylum because they're being threatened by another nation. They've come under attack and he's envisioning them reaching out to Judah for help. But since Judah is home to the throne of David, they refuse to seek help. They would rather take their chances, pride, than seek the help of Judah. So you see this reference here to pride. We see it also in chapter 14, verses 12 and following. Look at chapter, he's referencing Babylon here. And by the way, uh, many, many people will, will turn to chapter 14, verses 12 and following and say, oh, this is a reference to Satan. Uh, but contextually, historically, we know that it's a reference to the pri- pride of the Babylonian leaders. Um, not that it isn't satanic, pride certainly is. But you see in chapter tw- 14, verse 12, where in reference to Babylon, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. There's their pride. 
but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is the man who made the earth tremble, who shook, his, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast down away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. So you see the fall of this, this nation, this prideful nation. And you see that reference not only there in 14, but with Moab. You see it with Israel. Pride is the essence of all sin. We see that here exemplified through these nations. And Isaiah is showing us through these prophecies against these nations just how much God hates pride. And he will hold the proud to account. These nations in particular we see. And we know that that's what's wrong with the world. Pride is what's wrong with the world in so many ways. And yet the Bible talks about how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And so it's this warning to God's people that the proud will be held accountable. And it's a call even by implication to a life of humility. But not only does the proud highlight it, you see also the self-reliant. The sin of self-reliance was most evident among the people of God. Turn to chapter 17. Look at this language. Now in chapter 17, we know that the Lord is giving an oracle concerning Damascus, which is Syria, but Syria was also in alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel. And you see uh, Israel referenced throughout chapter 17. But in verses 9 through 11, this is what we read. Look at, this, is, this is the indictment that God has against his own people. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you will plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. You see there how the people of God are, are trusting more in what they can do. And you find that throughout the course of these chapters. In chapter 22, you see this oracle concerning Jerusalem, the valley of vision. You find it there as well. Notice it says, in that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest and you saw the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls of the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it. You see the difference? They're making all of these plans. They're trusting in their resources. They're looking around, cutting trees and, and, and dealing with homes and houses in order to try to protect themselves. But notice the indictment in verse 11. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. They were relying upon themselves and they were not looking to the Lord and putting their trust in him. While pride manifests itself in various ways of wickedness, Israel's poison Israel's own poison was their prideful reliance upon human works. Pride and self-reliance, brothers and sisters, are both deadly temptations. What the people of God needed in Isaiah's day and what we continue to need in our day is a big view of God who reigns sovereign and supreme over all the nations. This is what we need the most. We need this big view of God and an ever-diminishing reliance upon self or the things of this world. Friends, we must never base our hope 
and our comfort upon what we think we can accomplish in this world. We must look to the Lord and put our hope and trust in him. We see here, God holds all nations accountable, including his own people. He doesn't even overlook the sins of his own people. He holds, holds all nations accountable. And yet he holds out this promise for a remnant and for peace and for hope to come. Friends, this is a reminder to us as we read through these chapters. There is no security in this world except in God alone. It's an important lesson for us, especially here in America. There's too many security substitutes we're tempted to trust in. Ray Ortland Jr., a pastor, said it pretty well. He said, too many Americans have a faith that is more American than Christian. Their faith is not overcoming the world. The world is overcoming their faith. But God is calling us to an overcoming faith in him because he rules over the world. Friends, there's enough sin, there's enough evil, there's enough chaos, idolatry, injustice in this world to keep us distracted and discouraged the rest of our days, even to the point of despair. Yet God's word is here to remind us that even in the midst of horrible realities and evil and corruption that we face in this world, the increased ungodliness that we see, we have a sure foundation on which we can stand. Doesn't mean that we don't take action in the midst of the chaos to do good. We're certainly called to do that. And we trust God's help as we seek to, to do good in this world. But listen, as we kind of span back and look over the course of what Isaiah is writing in his day, throughout the course of human history, what we are seeing is that we can root our confidence, not in what we ultimately can accomplish in this world. We root our confidence in a God who is just and wise and good and who will hold all accountable and he will have the final word. That is where we put our trust. You think about the events of human history. Brothers and sisters, the events of human history are not meaningless. Now, I'm not one of those that finds some prophetic thing behind every rock that you find throughout the, the, the world's events today. There's danger in that. But what you can do is you can look back throughout the course of human history. You can look at the events happening today and understand that even in the midst of the chaos and the rampant wickedness of this world, the story of history is the story of God's work to redeem a people for himself and to preserve a people for himself despite how rebellious and wicked the world is. That's what we find in this text. And those of us who hold fast to the sovereignty of God over human history, we're going to stand out in a culture that is often caving to the things that go on in our day and in our time. So first point we see very clearly is that our confidence is to be rooted in God's judgment and God's justice. But number two, we see that our confidence is to be rooted in God's future provision. Not only is it to be rooted in the justice and judgment of God because he is sovereign, he has the final word, he has the final say, we root our confidence in God's future provision. We see that while church, uh, chapters 13 through 23 documents this authority that we see over the nations. In a series of oracles, we now move to a third series in this section and that is chapters 24 through 27. Turn with me to chapter 24. So we're coming out of these 10 oracles to a chapter now that is we, we see in chapter 24 through 27. We see that in chapters 24 through 27, we have a picture of the end of the world and how our hope is in the face of, our hope is in God in the face of that day. We're to trust in him. 
In chapters 24 through 27, we see a picture of the end of the world and how our hope is to be fulfilled in light of all that God is doing. In chapters 13 through 20, remember we have the historical prophecies. In chapters 21 through 23, we have history continued. And now in chapters 24 through 27, we see the final end come to play. And Isaiah presents this end of the world with a contrast of two cities. In chapter 24, verse 10, you see it's the wasted city. And then in chapter 26, verse 1, you see it's the strong city. Let's look first of all at the wasted city. We see how the wasted city is going to be destroyed. Chapter 24, verse 10, you see this depiction of the end of the world with verse 10 being the centerpiece of this section. We read this in verse 10 of chapter 24, the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. It's broken down. This city that the world built, this city that the the world established is a wasted city. Some translations say it's a city of confusion or a city of chaos, a city of emptiness. It's interesting, this wasted city, this word translated in the ESV, wasted, but sometimes confusion or chaotic or empty, is the same word Isaiah, or excuse me, Moses used in Genesis chapter one in the story account of creation. God used the word without form in chapter one, verse two of Genesis. Remember that? Genesis chapter one, verse two, we we read about how the earth was without form and void. That same word without form is the same word he's using here in reference to this city. This is a city without form. It's a city that is completely broken down. It's showing us that this is the end of every human institution with all of its influence and power. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know, if you want to see what happens to a world that stands defiantly against God, then Isaiah chapter 24 is your movie trailer. It is your preview of what is to come for every human institution that stands defiantly against a holy and righteous God. It will be a wasted, empty, chaotic city that is broken down in the end. That is the end of this city. Even verse nine of chapter 24, even the drunkards who threw away self-control and moderation, even the drunkards are silenced. Their drunken songs and their sensual celebrations come to an end and there is nothing but silence. St. Augustine is an early church father. He wrote a classic work called The City of God. And in The City of God, Augustine wrote about two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And we could really see how this is quite applicable here to Isaiah 24 through 27, this wasted city, this destroyed city, the city of man, Augustine would call it. This is what Augustine wrote of those two cities. He said, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self, the former In a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head to its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory, the lifter up of my head. You see, the city of man, as Augustine called it, is a city that will be desolated and humbled. 
in the end. Chapter 24, let me just read through these few verses in verses 10 and following. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. You see more in reference to this city in chapters 25 and 26 as well. But it's coming to an end. The city of man will be destroyed. And listen, the problem that we have in 2021 today, in light of what Isaiah is calling about this city of destruction, the problem is that too many people, even in our churches, too many people, even those in our churches, are finding this city that would be decimated much too comfortable to live in. Listen, if I were to tell you, hey, let's all pack up and move to New York City, but with 100% certainty, there's a nuclear bomb going to hit the city. We don't know when. It could be next week. It could be next year. It could be 100 years from now, but let's all move there. But there's guaranteed a nuclear bomb going to hit that city at some point in the future. How many of us would pack up and move? I don't think anyone would do that. No one. And yet that's what so many people today are doing. There is something far worse heading for the city of man, this wasted, chaotic city, than a nuclear bomb. And people are like, hey, look at my condo. Isn't my condo nice in this city that I've built? Look at the parks and the gardens of this city. Look at how great and glorious and powerful and wealthy this city is. And God's saying that city is going down in the future. Don't take up residence there. Don't take up residence in that city. Babylon is no place to live. But friends, there is a city you do want to move to. It's not the wasted city, it's the strong city of chapter 26. It's the strong city of chapter 26. We read, I want to back up and begin reading because there is hope that is being expressed. There is joy that is being expressed starting in chapter 25 O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, referring to the city of destruction, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. And then on to chapter 26, verse one. In that day, This song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. But oh friends, there is a city 
that is infinitely greater than that city that will be destroyed. It is this strong city. There are several things about this city that we see, several characteristics. First of all, we know that it is a joyful city. It is a joyful city. Look back at chapter 25. Chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. Let me pick back up where I left off earlier. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be a set on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, this is a joyful city. It is a city celebrating salvation. It is a city that is filled with feasting of great food and well-aged wine. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. It is a city we anticipate as God will bring it and bring us into it on that day. And we will say, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him. We've been putting our hope and our trust in him. We know that the city we live in now will be no more, but the city we've been promised will last forever. And there will be everlasting joy there. Don't you want to go to that city? Don't you want to be there on that day when God brings us into that city and there's no more death, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sin, there's no more injustice in this world, and there is salvation to be enjoyed, feasting to be enjoyed, and all of that is centered upon the joy we will have in the Savior, a joyful city. Number two, it's a peaceful city. You can go to virtually any city in this world and find lack of peace today. But this city that we're being promised is a city where there will be no more oppression, no more oppressive and ungodly rulers, no more threats, no more danger, no more wars, no more conflicts. We see in chapter 26, it is a city of peace. It is a strong city that the nations will inherit. In verses three and following, we see how there is peace established in this city. Look at verse 20 of chapter 26. The Lord says to his people, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. The Lord is saying, listen, there's going to be wrath, there's going to be judgment, there's going to be fury that comes upon the city of man, the city that is wasted. But listen, as my people, just wait patiently and you will be protected. You will enjoy peace. You will be spared from the fury of God's judgment against all the rebellious in this world. It is a city known for its peace. In verse 12 of chapter 26, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. It is a joyful city, it is a peaceful city. Number three, it is a global city. It is a global city. I want you to look at chapter 27. I told you we'd make it. Chapter 27. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan 
the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This symbolic imagery of a monster, sinful chaos that has raged in the world since Eden is going to be destroyed. But look, look what he says, verse two. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. You say, well, hold on a minute. Didn't you say something about a vineyard last week? That vineyard of chapter five that the Lord planted and that grew wild grapes that was not fruitful, that was not good, that he condemned. Notice what we're being told here. In that day, in that city, the Lord is going to plant another vineyard, this pleasant vineyard. And notice verse three, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. See this great vineyard that is being planted in the verse six. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots. And look, it will fill the whole world. The whole world with its fruits. Notice here the vineyard is restored. That fruitless vineyard of chapter five is now the pleasant vineyard of chapter 27. And this vineyard will be a vineyard that will include the people of all nations. It will reach beyond Israel to the ends of the earth. Notice what God is saying. He's like all the way through here saying, I'm going to, be, I'm going to judge these nations one by one, but I will also have a people, a remnant chosen by grace that will include my people in Judah and Israel, but it will be a people that includes those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And this city that we have looked forward to in chapter 27 is that global city where we will be one people under the banner of God for all of eternity. It was a glorious day. The question then is, how do we take up residence in that city? Because we're all born in the wasted city. Back in chapter 27, verses one and two, he mentions Leviathan, this symbolic imagery of sinful chaos that has reigned. And we're told that this dragon of the sea, this fleeing serpent will be destroyed by the Lord's sword and evil will be no more. So how do we avoid destruction along with Leviathan and along with this sinful world? What we see so far in the book of Isaiah is though all of this evil and all of this judgment and all of this justice that will come about, the way we have hope is to put our trust in the promises of God, namely in that promised king, that promised son, who we were told about back in Isaiah chapter seven and chapter nine. Jesus is that son, he is that king, and when he came, he was the one that, placed, that was placed upon the altar as a sacrifice that our sins could be forgiven in order that we could be reconciled with God. Friends, Jesus is the way to this city because he is the sovereign king over it. He is the way that we get there by looking to him, by looking away from the things of this world, by forsaking sin in this world and all that this world has to offer. And it will offer you a lot. This world will, will convince you that it is where you build your life. But Jesus is telling us, don't, don't take up residence there. Don't live in that city. Live in the city that's to come, and the way that you get there is through me. Putting your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. God will give salvation to his people. 
by defeating evil and giving us a joyful, peaceful, and global city comprised of people from all nations. It was the great novelist in the 1900s, Flannery O'Connor, that once said, our age has domesticated despair and learned to live with it happily. Friends, as the people of God, we've been given this word from Isaiah and what we are given is confidence. Confidence to stand as the people of God defiantly against despair. Confidence to stand defiantly against the madness and the evil and the ungodliness and the injustice of this world because God has promised that he will restrain evil. He will annihilate it once and for all and he will welcome us into that holy eternal city where we will enjoy him forever. This, friends, is how we have confidence and hope in a world gone wrong. God will bring it with full justice to account and God will bring his people to a city to enjoy. Let's make sure that by God's grace, we are in that city and not in the one that's wasted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. It's a lot. This is not our normal routine on a Sunday morning to go this fast and broad, but Lord, thank you for just giving us this, this aerial view of Isaiah's prophetic ministry and Father, your word to the nations, that you are a God of justice, that you are a God who will hold all accountable for their evil, and that there is no escaping that, Father. Would you use this in our lives to warn us, even as your people, to caution us, to warn us that we would not put our hope here in this world, and the things it has to offer, that we would not put our hope in the things of this life. Father, we... We need our confidence rooted in something much more than ourselves, much more than anything politics would offer, much more than, than, than what the false gods and the false narratives that we find in this world would, would seek to provide us. Father, our hope and our confidence is, be, is to be rooted in you and your sovereignty and your authority. You are the God who rules and reigns and you are the God to which we all will give account. And yet, Lord, you are the God who's promised amidst all of this chaos and all of this sin, you hold out a word of hope for those who would put their trust in this coming son, this king, that there would be redemption, reconciliation, that there would be joy forever in a city that you've established. Father, the city we live in now will not last forever and as Isaiah said, it, when it goes down, it will not be rebuilt. But the city you provide for your people, it's eternal. Father, would you help us to put our hope in Christ that we may be found there. And that despite the hardships and the hurts and the difficulties of this life, that we would find confidence being rooted in you. Thank you, Father, for giving us this word from Isaiah that we might learn it. And we might be more confident by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.